for another episode of Occam's Razor, a podcast about the unexplained. Brought to you on podcast radio with your host, Jim Birchall. Welcome to Occam's Razor, uh, the podcast about the unexplained. I'm your host, Jim Birchall. This is actually episode 50, so... We're going to raise the bet today. We've reached the half century. It's taken me uh, some time, probably about two years, or actually might even be pushing three years, such as the uh, lack of productivity I have with Occam's Razor. But uh, that's all good because we've got a very, very interesting and and pertinent guest on the show tonight. Richard Godfrey is a retired, I'll, I'll, I don't know if he's retired or if he's semi-retired. Um, we'll get to that in a moment, Richard, but you're a, a British aerospace engineer uh, currently residing in Frankfurt, where he has for the past 30 years. Um, he is part of a group of like-minded scientists, an independent group of like-minded scientists um, who have occupied their time over the past seven years in the search for Malaysian Airlines plane mh370 um now unless you've been living in a box somewhere you you probably would have heard about the disappearance of mh370 and richard believes after doing uh quite a bit of research over the past seven years and applying his not inconsiderable talents and skills and experience uh thinks he may have solved one of the most enduring mysteries of the past decade. So first of all, thanks for coming on the show, Richard. How are you this evening? Well, you're morning your time, isn't it? I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thank, thanks, Jim. No worries. We were just talking off air. Uh, Richard's actually blowing up all over. Sam, you might have uh, seen if you, you Google Richard's name or even just MH370 um, in the past couple yep. of days. And he's everywhere. He's, he's just He's gone viral, as the kids say. So Good to see you, and we're very privileged that Richard <laughs> come on, uh, come on our humble show as well after appearing with, on some of the big guns. You mentioned you were on with the BBC later today, was it, Richard? Yeah, I was um, on BBC Radio just now, and BBC did a a nice article uh, which came out on Thursday about uh, MH370. Yep, um, and. Uh, there are lots of interest around the world in this mystery, but I think most of all, uh, the interest is with the next of kin who want uh, closure after seven and a half years. And I do think of the families and friends who lost loved ones on MH370. Mm, no, absolutely. That's and that's one thing that should never actually be forgotten. You know, a lot of these things get caught up in media hype and that sort of stuff. And then you forget that there's real people involved, real human beings, as you say, and, and, and family that, that want closure and have never had closure. Um, and that's, and that's important, um, as you say. So Malaysian airlines 370 disappeared uh, around the eighth, well, on the eighth of March, 2014, um, last known location, possibly uh, everything's pretty speculative when it comes to this until you speak with people, like Richard, have done their research. Now, the Southern Indian Ocean appears to be uh, the place. Obviously, that's a pretty vast uh, search area um, where the the last communications were received. And that was, excuse me if I'm wrong, um, it was up until about just under an hour or so um, they lost communication, didn't they? Um, was it about, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. It was about... Yeah, that's, that's right. About 48 it, minutes? It took off from... Yeah. Yeah, took off from Kuala Lumpur, and then, as you point out, um, it uh, 
40 minutes after takeoff, it, um, they lost contact directly with the aircraft. There was no radio communication. The transponder seems to have been switched uh, off or to standby. Uh, and uh, the, the aircraft disappeared from the air traffic control radar screens. Okay. Okay. And since then, first of all, just a bit of background on the group. We, uh, we alluded to earlier um, a bunch of, well, scientists or with a, well, well, people drawn from sort of all aspects involving aviation and engineering and that sort of stuff and, and OFA with up-to-date search techniques. Um, how did you get involved in the whole thing? Was it something you were interested from the initial disappearance um, or were you, were you brought into a work group or anything like that? How, how did you get involved? Um, my original involvement was uh, goes back um, to 2009, a few years beforehand. I was working in Brazil and on Air France 447 to return to uh, Europe. I had to stay on business for a couple of weeks uh, more and rebooked on a Lufthansa flight from Sao Paulo instead uh, back to Frankfurt. Uh, but when I heard that Air France 447 crashed in the Atlantic Ocean and all people on board were lost, uh, it obviously grabbed me and uh, caught my imagination, as you would appreciate. Oh. Um, and when I heard about MH370 in 2014, um, obviously a different ocean, but, uh, a crash far away from land in the middle of the ocean, it um, immediately caught my attention and I followed the story. No, whereas you would. Now, through implementation of what's been described as revolutionary tracking technology uh, based on something called WS, uh, was a WhisperNet, is it? Is it? Um, that's right. The radio wave, effectively, isn't it? That, that's what you're basing your hypothesis on? Um, we have uh, WhisperNet, but we also have the Imasat satellite data. We have data from Boeing. We have data from oceanographers who've tracked uh, the floating debris that has been turned up on different beaches and the coasts of uh, the Indian Ocean. Um, and then finally, with this new technology from WhisperNet, um, I've uh, data set and they all align with a crash location in the southern end at around 33 degrees south 95 degrees east which is about uh, 2,000 kilometers uh, west of Perth in Australia okay so between sort of Perth and Indonesia is, is the search area for in, in layman's terms. How how vast in, in square kilometres is the, I know you've been able to pinpoint it, but in terms of putting a needle in a haystack, how vast was the area you were looking in from the start? From the start in 2015 the, um, uh, and 2016, the researchers were looking at a, an area 120,000 kilometres. Um, what I'm now uh, bringing it down to is a uh, radius, a circle of radius 40 nautical miles around my uh, crash location. This is, of course, very helpful for the underwater search because um, they don't need to cover vast uh, um, area. 
of the uh, the the sea floor, which is full of mountains and canyons and ridges and cliffs and volcanoes, even on the bottom of the ocean. So very uh, inhospitable uh, place to go look, and very difficult terrain um, to to scan. Mm. Obviously, there was a correlation. Well, there was a there was a bunch of different scientific techniques and stuff like that, as you say, brought brought into the search. Um, in the end, it became the, it displaying this this low. It's like a low cost alternative detection software. This this um, WSPR, also known as Weak Signal Propagation Network. Could you briefly explain how that works? I understand it's some sort of uh, what's well, a global kind of network. Is about five thousand units. Um, around the world, and so how was that data was correlated, and how's it how's it linked? How's the network linked, as it were? Yeah, there are there are millions of radio amateurs um, around the globe, and they, they use this WhisperNet to send hundreds of test signals every two minutes. Um, these tests they use to check out the propagation of their radio waves. They want to check whether, you know, if they're sitting in Switzerland, they can talk to their mate in New Zealand uh, and what the propagation chances are um, and, uh, at that point in time. They collect all this data in a historic database going back to 2008. So I went back to 2014 to the 8th of March and looked at the data and what I've been doing is checking whether there are any disturbances in the radio signals um, going uh, around the globe and crossing the uh, Indian Ocean and the, crossing the path of MH370. That's a difficult task um, in a crowded airspace. When MH370 took off, there were 21 other aircraft in the immediate vicinity. Um, but uh, when, once the aircraft gets into the uh, southern Indian Ocean, uh, I detected one other aircraft. Uh, that was a United Emirates uh, uh, flight from Perth to Dubai that came anywhere near the path of MH370. So the sky's pretty empty in there. And when uh, you get a disturbance in the radio signal, it's much easier to to pick it up and, and detect and track uh, MH370. Interesting. Sam, you've got a question. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've got uh, a potential where, but uh, any ideas on the how or the why <laughs> this, this plane went down? Yeah, that's a very good question, Sam. Um one of the things of note to me is that the captain of the flight, uh, Sahari Shah, had a um, home flight simulator, quite an extensive home flight simulator. And on the simulator, he um, actually simulated at one point a flight into the southern Indian Ocean um, until fuel exhaustion. Now, I don't know about you, but most people I know have got a home flight simulator. They want to try and land in some difficult uh, canyon airport in, in the mountains somewhere or land on an aircraft carrier uh, in the middle of the ocean, do something clever. 
they don't actually fly to fuel exhaustion in the middle of the Indian uh, in Indian Ocean. So um, that's one thing. And then during my analysis of the flight, the actual flight path of uh, MH370, at one point it tracked towards this endpoint from Sahari Shah's simulator. So for me, that's a bit of a smoking gun. Um, and I asked the question whether the captain um, hijacked his own plane. Is that the kind of uh, information that that would have would be you know subpoenaed? Because I understand it wouldn't be admissible in court, especially after the fact. But any any coronary inquest or anything like that is that kind of information that that could be part of a, an inquiry, or is that likely to be white? How, how does that? How does someone who has a flight simulator is is every flight you take on one of those recorded in some way? Is the is the data exported? Does it stay within the computer? How does that work? Um, it was actually found on an external drive, um, and the files were actually deleted. The Malaysian authorities uh, asked the FBI for um, their expert help to recover these deleted files. Um, and um, I'm not privy to the FBI's report, uh, but I'm sure if this came up in a court of law, uh, the FBI report would be one of the uh, uh, pieces of evidence uh, uh, used. Um, it's, of course, not inclusive, um, the fact that a such a simulation was run uh, on Sahari Shah's uh, computer. Um, but at the moment, in the absence of authorities revealing any other data they may have, uh, that's my current theory that the captain uh, hijacked his own plane. Okay. Um, now, they, they would have done some extensive background checks uh, into the pilot, I assume, and uh, pre-employment vetting and the like. Um, and I'm, I'm sure people are in, associated with the investigation. You know, this guy's name was was top of the list, um, as it were. Had he had he shown any, um, you know, tendency towards being nefarious, or had he had any connection with any terrorist organisations or anything like that? Did any of that come to light? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, the only thing I think of of note was that. Uh, he was, uh, Sahari Shah was clearly um, politically engaged as, uh, as a normal citizen might be. And uh, he was certainly supportive of an opposition leader by the name of uh, Anwar Ibrahim, um, who on the Friday, the 7th of March, 2014, was sentenced to five years in jail um, by the authorities on what his supporters regard as trumped up uh, bogus charges. Um, I think uh, this would have upset Sahari Shah, uh, but whether that is sufficient for him to um, hijack his plane, uh, use the passengers as um, hostages, uh, any desire to negotiate with the government for the release of Anwar Ibrahim. I mean, that's just pure speculation. And seeing how the communication ceased uh, was about 40 minutes into the flight. 
um, there was never any you know demands made or anything like that. So that that sort of adds the mystery, doesn't it? Yeah, the, the, there may have been demands, but they've not been made public, if there were. Um, and uh, we have no no communication from the aircraft. Uh, we have no uh, uh, collaborators on the ground speaking of this. There's no mention from the authorities. So um, it uh, either didn't happen or it's been uh, hushed up. Is it, is it your contention that there was an explosion on board or it, or they no. it was suffered because, you know, through crashing into the ocean? One of the, one of the theories is um, there was a, a cargo of lithium batteries and there might have been a fire um, because lithium is quite unstable mm. and can and has been known to to cause fires but in my research every uh, aircraft which experienced a, a fire on board had about 20 minutes to land at the nearest emergency uh, airport and um, didn't carry on for seven and a half hours um, uh, an aircraft that carried on flying for seven and a half hours uh, is normally an aircraft that is uh, fully attacked um, there was no attempt uh, at any to land at any of the airports in the in the vicinity, um, Cotabato, Penang, Langkawi, Banache airports were all passed by, uh, all capable of taking a Boeing seven seven seven, and uh, there was no diversion to any of these airports. So I conclude um, the aircraft carried on uh, until it ran out of fuel. How do you account for the eyewitnesses? Now, I understand there was uh, two to three, a, f- a fellow on an oil rig and some people on a in an atoll near the Seychelles, um, and there was some reports of a large, well, explosion, for lack of a better term. Um, where does that sit with you? Um, I, um, I've heard of the eyewitness on the oil rig, uh, but um, from what he reports, the what he saw was a long way away, um, and um, he just uh, reports seeing a, a flash of light. Um, it's not very precise or very conclusive. The there was a thing um, over the Maldives uh, um, early following morning. Um, but uh, meanwhile, uh, um, analysts have found there was a uh, Boeing 777 from the Saudi Arabian royal family uh, on a flight into the Maldives. I've actually published an article on on this. Um, so that has now been um, resolved that it wasn't MH370. Um, and... Uh, we do have, I mean, the Imasat satellite data has been available since uh, right from the beginning. And it's very clear um, on uh, to me uh, where the, the path of uh, MH370 uh, headed uh, into the, the southern Indian Ocean. The problem with the Imasat satellite data is we only have it around about every hour. Um, and uh, that's... 
With the whisper data, we have it every two minutes, so it's uh, a much better picture of the of the flight path. Um, and the Inmarsat satellite data only tells you how far the aircraft is from the satellite. It doesn't give you the exact position. It's not like a GPS um, system that tells you. Uh, exact position. So uh, the whisper net data can give you um, a relatively precise position. If you get two um, whisper net signals crossing each other, the point where they intersect uh, fits where the aircraft uh, is predicted to be, then it's a pretty certain um, piece of evidence that that's where the aircraft uh, was at that time. Lending weight to your theory um, about, you know, the pilot, um, I understand he changed, well, the, the flight path um, was described as being carefully planned. I think it was a quote from, from you, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, now, the pilot changed his speed and direction multiple times to avoid um, giving any clear idea where he was heading, um, which <laughs> it does sound pretty suspicious even to a layman like me. Um, how did you come up with that data? Um, in in tracking the the aircraft, I could uh, see these uh, turns and, and changes of speed, um, and I think I would do the same thing if if I thought anyone might be following me, tracking me. Um, I would uh, be changing uh, direction and, and changing uh, speed. Uh, basically shake anybody uh, off my tail if they were tailing me. Of course, the further you get into the Southern Indian Ocean, the less likely uh, it is that another aircraft might be um, trying to follow you or, or track you. Um, there, there were very few other aircraft that uh, were in the area, so the chances of them uh, picking you up um, uh, especially if your transponder switched off is is negligible. If if he left the transponder or switched the transponder back on, then it would show up on any aircraft in uh, within range uh, in the area. But it's it's uh, it's unlikely. I think he was thinking at one point um, he ended holding pattern for twenty minutes, and maybe he was thinking of waiting for some negotiation result. At one point, he headed towards Geraldton Airport in Western Australia. Maybe he was going to try and uh, land and seek asylum. Um, but then he headed off into the Southern Indian Ocean to the middle of nowhere. And I think at that point, he just wanted to lose the aircraft in the remotest possible location he could. Okay, because he ended up close to um, Sumatra at one point, didn't he? Yeah, he flew around Sumatra in the uh, earlier stage uh, of the flight. Um, and then the holding pattern was about 150 nautical miles uh, off the coast of Sumatra. Um, but then he basically headed um, uh, south, uh, sometimes southwest, sometimes southeast, uh, but uh, general direction south, um, as I mentioned, one time towards West Australia, and then um, one time uh, towards his simulator uh, endpoint, uh, but uh, 
then generally due south uh, towards the South Pole and uh, as far as he could go. Okay. Okay. Throughout your investigation, um, obviously it's a, it's a multinational investigation. I understand you, you received some uh, flight tracking data from New Zealand Air Force. Um, I, I saw that come across. Um, how much cooperation have you had being a civilian group effectively uh, with, with the military arm and, and indeed the corporate side with, with Malaysian Air? Have they been cooperative in, you know, in terms of information sharing or is it very much a, a piecemeal on release? You know, you know, if you ask for something, they'll, they'll tell you it, but anything further, so do you got to dig for yourself? I think um, originally the authorities... Um, were a bit suspicious of this independent analyst wanting to get in on what is quite clearly their their territory and uh, uh, and amateurs basically were not welcome. Um, but the ATSB who managed the search, um, the Australian uh, Transport Safety uh, Bureau, they. Um, really were very interested in what we did and and a number of us have been actually acknowledged and thanked in their final report for um for our contribution um since uh, then they've maintained a great interest and i've been in recent contact with the atsb been very supportive um amsa the uh, search uh, uh, authority that uh, mounted the the original search um, gave me all of their data under a confidentiality agreement. Um, so I can't make it public, but I've been able to use it. Uh, as you mentioned, the Royal New Zealand Air Force under a freedom of information request um, uh, gave us the detailed flight data of one of their search aircraft back in 2014 sent out to the search area. And I, I use that data to test my system. So I attract their aircraft um, out into the Indian Ocean in 2014. That was important to me because um, I wanted to track an aircraft in that area at that time. Um, it's one thing to track an aircraft today um, in the middle of Europe, say, but it's another thing to track it in 2014 in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Do you, to get stuff from the, um, the the Whisper network, do you have to have cooperation from the the users? How how do you get hold of that info? No, they have a website. Uh, it's publicly available. You can download any of the data. It is huge. <laughs> Uh, it's a lot of data. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to go through it. Um, uh, you need to be able to handle large volumes of data yeah. or split it down into manageable chunks. Um, but we have uh, yesterday uh, released a challenge because we have one or two detractors and doubters around the world who uh, don't believe uh, that you can use WhisperNet to to track uh, aircraft. Uh, we issued a challenge um, suggesting they download some some data from WhisperNet 
some recent data. Um, they pick, for example, the island of Réunion in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Um, they tra track uh, signals being sent uh, by radio amateurs on that island and received by radio amateurs on that island. Compare that with uh, signals received in, in, say, Western Australia, several thousand kilometers away, and they can find out for themselves that uh, the uh, peaks in the signals uh, um, match the arrivals and departures of aircraft in Réunion Airport. And you can look up in Flight Aware or Flight Radar 24, um, and you can get the arrival and departure times, um, and you can match it up. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how many people pick up that challenge um, and uh, prove for themselves uh, that this can work. Absolutely. Sam, you've got something to add? Yeah, uh, just an, another question. There was another flight that year, uh, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, I think it was, that went uh, shot down in, in July. Do you, do you think there's any connection to that at all, or is that just a horrible coincidence, uh, something that was added in the media? Yeah, I, I've seen the report. Um, uh, it was a flight from Amsterdam. It had a lot of uh, people from, from Holland uh, on that flight uh, to, uh, to Malaysia. And as you say, it was shut down uh, over Ukraine um, in a what is believed uh, Russian-supported uh, um, part of the Ukraine, and it was a, a, a Russian... Uh, surface-to-air missile that was used. Um, it is uh, equally sad tragedy, but I don't see a direct uh, connection. Um, I know there are one or two theories about uh, uh, tit-for-tat, uh, that there was gold on board MH370, that uh, the sorry, Russians... Uh, sorry, Sorry, Richard, some of the crew uh, were HIV researchers, weren't they, and AIDS researchers, and I think that added to the conspiratorial aspect of it. Indeed, there were a number of people working for a particular uh, company and um, uh, who were on board MH370. But I haven't come to any direct conclusion uh, of a connection between MH370 and MH17. However, for Malaysia Airlines, two losses uh, in, in one year was uh, um, a disaster financially, and uh, the government had to step in and uh, help the airline. Absolutely. Um, now, obviously, with you coming out with, with pinpointing the location, the approximate, well, we you think MH370 may lie. Um, you've been speaking with the recovery people and invested parties looking to obviously recover that. Now we've had some recovery operations in the past or attempts when debris has, has washed up throughout the Indian ocean. Um, these new approaches, I don't know if they're commercially sensitive, if you can talk about them, are they coming from, um, you know, government organizations? Or are they coming from uh, private investors? Who, who has the most interest in recovering this craft? Um, there was a, a company called Ocean Infinity who conducted a search in 2018 on a 
no no find no fee basis in an agreement with the Malaysian uh, authorities. Um, they are very interested to go back. They consider this uh, unfinished business as far as they're concerned. Okay. They have meanwhile uh, developed new technology uh, which makes underwater searches even easier and faster. Um, and uh, I think they are, are keen to to prove their new technology and finding MH370 would uh, obviously uh, be important for them. Um, my report is with the Malaysian authorities um, and they are currently considering it. Uh, the next of kin are trying to get a meeting with the Malaysian authorities um, even um, in the coming week uh, to find uh, out what uh, their view is. Um, and there are other organizations uh, uh, funded by philanthropists um, who have set up companies building underwater technology, um, uh, underwater autonomous vehicles, um, even vehicles uh, that can be um, parachuted out the back of an aircraft um, and you can drop 10 un underwater uh, vehicles in the ocean. Uh, they go search um, uh, autonomously. Um, they come to the surface to recharge their batteries, to communicate their findings by satellite. Um, it's uh, really interesting um, stuff. Uh, but uh, frankly, I don't see... Uh, a rush uh, to get back out into the Indian Ocean. I think it would take several months to get uh, uh, the teams together, the technology together to deploy um, into the Indian Ocean. Um, so my expectation is more likely it'll be the middle of next year uh, before um, we see further underwater search um, and uh, we wait and a half years. We can wait eight oh, or eight and a half years, I think, um, to get the answers. That's brilliant, and and hopefully uh, bring some peace to the to the families of the of the deceased. As, Indeed, as say is the most important part, really. And but also, you know, the flying public and the aviation industry want answers. Uh, the aviation industry obviously doesn't want. Uh, crashes like this happening again and the flying public want to make sure that when they get on a plane they actually arrive at their destination and uh, so uh, although aircraft travel is one of the safest forms of travel uh, nevertheless the fear of flying is uh, quite common <laughs> absolutely i have it myself <laughs> There, we've come to the end of the episode richard so uh, thanks for coming on and imparting your um, substantial knowledge on the MH370 case. Um, just give those coordinates one more time uh, to to people actually for the for the amateur Google Earth people out there. Yeah, so it's um, 33.177 degrees south, 95.300 degrees east. Um, you can look it up on Google Earth. Uh, the on my website, there is a, a very nice uh, short video from Geoscience Australia that shows you what the uh, uh, underwater rain looks like and 
It's a bit gnarly. I mean, volcanoes, cairns, ridges. So um, take a look. That website is www.mh370search.com. And uh, thanks for your time and your interest in my world.